Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Are drugs a political issue, a left or right issue? This is Stop and Search, episode 7. Here we go, then. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where travels southern streets Since the first Monday of the month and that's the new time slot of when we're going to be releasing and this is the Distraction Pieces Network brought to you by Acast you're listening to Stop and Search we're not going to hang about we're going to go straight into this episode because there's a lot to get through but stick with it because it's so so interesting this is possibly one of the ones I've been most fascinated with Uh, the panel a perfect mix I think we have Dr Julian Hooper who in 2010 to 2015 was the Cambridge MP uh, he was the most senior scientist in the House of Commons. We also have Ian Birrell, who has written for the Daily Mail, The Independent, uh, iNews, uh, Guardian. He was also David Cameron chief speechwriter. And completing the lineup, we have Ian Dunt, who is the editor of politics.co.uk, which is one of the biggest political websites in the country. Check it out. Loads of great analysis on it. I'll speak to you at the end of the episode just to give you a little bit of a roundup. So here we go then, it's Are Drugs a Political Issue? What do you think? So thank you everybody for coming. After we sorted our drinks out, quite obviously. The most important thing. And I'll be able to sit you over here again. I think it's pretty fair to say that the first question you need to ask is, is drug policy a political issue, Ian? Well, yeah, no, I mean, it certainly is. I, I, I don't really think there's anything, really, that isn't political, that, that isn't just admin. So, I mean, it's certainly political. At the heart of the drug issue, and we don't really talk about this very much, and those of us who campaign for a change in drug law tend to almost never talk about it, is one moral imperative, which is that you are entitled to make the decisions that you want about what you put into your body, and the state is not entitled to make that decision for you. We almost never bring that up, I think partly because it really just doesn't have much of an effect with the public. I mean, the public tend to have much more sort of pragmatic ideas around how to go about these things. But at the core of it is the right of people to decide on their own bodily autonomy and on how they live their life. And that is a political issue. It's a moral issue as well. But certainly, I mean, you can't talk about this without talking about politics. Julian, you you were instrumental within the Home Affairs Select Committee, which is evidence that we submitted within LEAP. Um, We had a conference in 2012, just as the Olympics was finishing. It's kind of anecdotal and not necessary, but I got told a gold medal on that day of, which is, to me, fantastic. Got to do drug policy conference and hold a gold medal, so there you go. Um, You must have been so frustrated in 
certain processes that goes on in Parliament, having had such a scientific background. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating uh, how little interest there is in evidence. Um, you know, I, I believe you, you should split these issues up into what your values are and then what the evidence is of what works to achieve them. Um, and science can tell you a lot of it. You can do experiments on what happens. doesn't quite tell you what you're trying to achieve, but it should tell you how you can get there. In the case of drugs, possibly one of the most important things was the uh, International Comparator Study that we did force the Home Office to do. I mean, they really didn't want to do it. Theresa May was not interested in finding out what happens elsewhere, which showed that how strong your drugs laws are has basically no effect on how many people actually consume drugs, which makes the whole idea of prohibition utterly pointless. You know, yes, you know, all these drugs are harmful, whether they're legal, whether they're illegal, alcohol, medicines, whatever, they, they have harms benefits too um, but it just is pointless trying to make them illegal if it doesn't reduce use at all it's completely the wrong approach so um, but the home office didn't want to know I mean that report was fascinating um, you could see the gaps where the recommendations and conclusions were because the home office didn't want to know anything that wasn't what they started off thinking I just think that's utterly the wrong way to do anything we're seeing it on a much larger scale with so many areas you know, anybody should, who's in politics or anywhere nearby should be prepared to say, this is what I'm trying to do, what actually works? And Ian Birrell, so I think it's fair to say that you do represent more of our right-leaning position within <laughs> this. Which, drug policy is weird for that, because there are quite a few people within the Conservatives that support this and vocally support this. Would you say that there is a growing support and a groundswell within that? I think that's definitely true. I mean, in a way, this is such a boring conversation because it was the first campaign I ever got involved in when I was a student at the NUS, National Union of Students. And I remember with a friend organising then the student cannabis campaign and it actually turned more into a sort of situation comedy stunt because uh, all that happened was that we were a bit late turning up to our first meeting and by the time we got to the lobby of the Imperial Hotel in Blackpool, it was filled up with a couple of dealers and there was a smoke-in going on. <laughs> so it didn't actually get very far, that campaign. Obviously, I said it was nothing to do with me. And... Um, but then I remember t writing to all the local MPs, and what struck me was that the Labour MPs there, who uh, in in the region there where I was in northeast Scotland, uh, there were Labour MPs in Scotland in those days, um, uh, were quite were incredibly conservative and had a sort of um, reefer madness view of cannabis, in that it was the you know the biggest evil known to mankind and it had to be banned. The Tories were actually more sort of open, and I remember meeting one very nice old guy who I, I won't name. But he said, in my days, dear chap, it was all blues. I don't really understand your modern drugs. Um, but it, they don't seem very bad to me. But it sort of showed that there was, I thought, a more sort of open attitude on the right than, than on the traditional left in those days. And I think in a way that's still true. I've always thought reform is more likely to come from the right than the left. I think Labour is much more cautious on this issue. Obviously, the Liberals... Um, uh, are more sympathetic to it. UKIP, interestingly, Nigel Farage has come out uh, with some pro-reform arguments, which is interesting. But within the Conservatives, although despite the name, I think there's more openness to, to engagement on this subject and to actually doing something. And I've always really thought that reform will come from an unlikely source, whether it's Theresa May or someone else. Uh, it's always been my view that, in a way, because they're safest to make the move and someone like that is going to be covered by being seen as being on the right and being uh, tough, perhaps, on crime or whatever, that it's more likely to come from those sort of quarters than anyone else. 
just to come in on that, I mean, I think I agree with a lot of what you say, and certainly there was a big drugs debate that Caroline Lucas and I organised, um, and I think all the Tories and Lib Dems who spoke were pro-reform. Many of the Labour were, but some of them weren't. But I think there's a real problem because people always talk about issues as being on the left or right, and it assumes that all of politics is just one line. And that's just utterly, utterly wrong. There are many different axes, but one of them is a liberal authoritarian. How much, uh, as Ian was saying, um, is it about what the state can do to you? And there are people who are on the left who are authoritarians. There are people on the left who are liberals. And there are people on the right who are authoritarians and liberals. So it is about that liberal authoritarian axis. And I think we just have to stop trying to pretend that everything is left-right. Because more and more, if you look at the big issues facing us, whether it's to do with investigatory powers bill and state surveillance, whether it's to do with our role in the world, with Europe, it's not about left and right. It's much more complex than that. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with that round of applause. It's always bothered me how we do divide things into left and right. Because until I was politically active in my mid-twenties, I had no idea what left and right was and what that constituted. Is there a danger that you're straight away dismissing people, Ian, in the fact that we are pigeonholing people without them even completely understanding themselves what left and right is? No, I have a very unfashionable view on this, which is that left and right are very useful terms. But that they're useful in a very specific way, which is to say... This is how we want to redistribute resources. To the right, generally, your sense of individual freedom is you get to keep what you earn. To the left, very, very generally, the idea is you're part of a community, you spread it out. And it's the fact that we've drifted away from that very tight definition into thinking that left means broadly liberal progressivity that has actually clouded our thoughts in quite a dangerous way and much more dangerous than just drug policy. I think that if you look at what's happened with politics in general for the last 20 years, if you look at what's happening even when it comes to, say, Brexit and Trump, what we're seeing is I think what happens when progressive forces give up on economics and just don't bother having that debate whatsoever and leave suddenly those communities open to messages that have to come from the right because there is no left-wing message to counter them. So I think these terms are still useful. The trouble is that we've just sort of departed away from their strict proper meaning into a generalised social category, which, as you're saying, doesn't really match up. I mean, I, agree, I get a, a much more resistance to, the, to a drug reform message from Labour MPs than you do from Conservative MPs. Partly, I think, because there's more of a hedonistic streak in right-wing thought, you know, through the ages. There's more of a, often a, a sort of direct personal experience of these things. And also partly, I think, because Labour is a part of the left that came from the trade unionism movement. And usually, to that, that historically, trade unionism has actually had an instinctive opposition towards drugs. It's something to fritter away, to waste your time, or worse, to get lost in that left-wing place of, oh, isn't reality just nonsense, really, and maybe we're always M Buddhists, which, of course, doesn't really help you with the class struggle. So I think for those reasons, yeah, I mean, these are still helpful terms. It's just useful if we're more strict about the way that we use them. Actually, I'd argue slightly differently, which is I think there's a streak of extraordinary conservatism on the left. And a lot of what passes for uh, under the banner of, le of the left now is about preserving and conserving uh, things from decades gone past. And in a way, the freshest thinking is coming, I think, from the center and from the right, who are challenging much more. And uh, so I think in a way the names are very misleading and like it or not, a lot of the challenge, whether it's the sort of right wing that I hate, which you see with UKIP, or whether it's the, uh, the sort of more liberal right, the compassionate right, whether it's centre ground, I don't see much sign of fresh thinking coming from the left beyond trying to preserve an old fashioned uh, settlement that dates back perhaps to the post-war era. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's a statist thing that you often see of the world would be better if everybody behaved like this. And while in some cases that's true, I, th I think the world is better off if people choose how to behave. 
Um, and I just think there really is that, that drive of people should do the things that we want them to do. We see that in lots of other circumstances, again, with um, how, do you, how do you deal with street drinking, how do you deal with all sorts of, of issues. Uh, and I've seen much more, particularly with Labour councils around the country, imposing the controls. Mm. The Tories, I would say, tend to just ignore the problems, um, you know, which isn't the right answer either. But imposing controls and just making it illegal. You know, we see places where it's illegal to be homeless, um, which doesn't really work all that well. <laughs> And that's, that's what you find, as long as you can have a debate within it, it's helpful. But there's quite a few times where the debate just gets shut down through a moralistic position. And I don't know if that's a left or right issue. I don't think that, that can be attributed. I mean, I don't think that's left or right. So take the, the moment where Anna Johnson sat Professor David Nye as chair of the Advisory Council on Misuse of Drugs. I remember sitting in the press gallery watching the Commons immediately afterwards. I mean, they were united in praise for the, for the Home Secretary at the time. And it was Peter Tatzel was the one that stood up and was eventually like, you know, in the, you know, the words of Churchill, was scientists should be on tap and not on top. And there was a sense of political backpatting over the fact of, no, we are not anchored down by data. You know what I mean? Like, we, we are, it's our job in this sort of mixed up, are you representing people? Are you, you know, are you there for some sort of more specific policy-oriented approach? All of it was to say the scientists are there in the background to be called on when required. That reality, objective reality, does not impinge upon what we do in terms of policy, not necessarily anyway. And I think that that's spread out completely across the house. Would you say, Ian, that we, we've reached this famously at the moment, we're getting so many different quotes of experts being a, a dirty word now. We recently had Jacob Rees Mogg that came out and said they're all soothsayers and having a healthy disrespect for experts is a good thing and dates back in history. Is there a danger now where the word expert and, and being a scientist is actually just not remotely taken seriously? No, I don't think so. I mean, there is this ridiculous idea that experts are a bad thing, which is being promoted by a crowd who um, don't have any reliance whatsoever on evidence. Um, but uh, I think in an argument like this, it's great to have as wide a circle of, uh, as possible. But I think the thing we do need to accept is there is a Conservative government until 2020, probably, depending on Brexit. The odds are that there'll be a Conservative government for another five years after that. Therefore, the interesting question for people who want to reform any policy, of, such as drug policy, is how do we then engage with the most likely administration to affect the change we want? And I think the really interesting thing that happened in America which the Conservative uh, columnist Andrew Sullivan brought my attention to, was how the debate flipped when it stopped being hippies in California and started becoming soccer mums in Delaware who were making this argument. And they were making the argument not on the grounds of let us smoke dope, but on the grounds that it's safer, on the grounds that it's economically sensible, on the grounds that um, it makes sense not to hand control of a huge trade to the most lethal gangsters in town, on the grounds that it stops your kids inhaling the wrong substance, on the grounds that if they do do something, that they can be protected. And it was the soccer mums who changed the debate. And I think that's what we've got to work out in this country, is how do we engage Middle England, Middle Scotland, Middle Wales, how do we engage people who might be nervous about drug reform? How do we engage people who might be scared or have no knowledge of the issues? How do we engage people who are going to persuade the policymakers to actually change? And I think the really important thing, the thing I've tried to do 
is, um, I mean, is to try and point out why drug reform is actually a very conservative issue with a small c. It's a conservative issue because it is anti-crime. It's a conservative issue because it's fiscally responsible. It raises more money. It stops wasting money. It's a, a conservative issue because it's about libertarianism. For lots of reasons, it's a conservative issue. It's not a left-right thing. Uh, and I think what we should be doing is finding ways to engage with the current government, to engage with people who we need to win over. I mean, I've done a lot of work within the immigration debate, which is a profoundly depressing debate to be in. And there, it's noticeable that there's, if there's, you look at the studies, about 20, 25% of the public are very antagonistic towards immigration. Come what may, they don't want more foreigners coming into their country. A similar amount, slightly less, are very supportive of immigration and very relaxed about change and very open. In the middle is a vast swathe of people, uh, the vast majority, maybe 60%, 65%, who are not racist, uh, they're not xenophobic, but they are concerned about their country, they're concerned about jobs, they're concerned about public services. And this is where the argument on immigration has been lost. And it's the same sort of approach, I think, that we need on this issue of drug reform, which is how to engage the people with really uh, perhaps a mild scepticism on the issue, how to engage them and how to persuade them that this is sensible on any ground, whatever. There is no logic for prohibition. Prohibition is damaging, it's dangerous, it's stupid, it's self-defeating. But how do we engage people to point that out to them, persuade them that actually it doesn't mean free skunk for 11-year-olds. What it actually means is a far saner approach to a social issue. But I think you know, that's right. You have to try and change how this is perceived. Um, we will never win as long as it seems as a sort of hippie liberal argument that, you know, that just is not persuasive. And actually, we have made huge progress on that in the last couple of decades. I mean, LEAP, for example, it's been really good to have serious law enforcement people who are not famously all hippies uh, coming out. I mean, Neil's book, uh, Good Cop, Bad War, available from all good bookshops, is a fantastic, is a fantastic reading, a fantastic example. It persuades well, everybody I've given it to so far, um, to change their minds. We need more people like that, more people who are chief constables, who used to run MI5, who are, you know, not the jobs that come out as famously hippie. That's where we'll get it. If we can get the soccer mums and get everyone else to realise, that will be helpful. We're, we're quite close. It's an interesting question. The US, of course, they have the state system where places can experiment more. There can be local... Um, referenda which can start to move things forward. We've seen another set of states. It's harder here because we do it all or nothing. But we are slowly making progress. But I think you're right. We have to try and find the arguments which will persuade people who don't come from the sort of core group that I suspect we all are in. What is it that will make the sort of the respectable mother, the respectable father, say, actually, we need to do this? And I think Ian's right about the sorts of messages. It is about making things safer. Just, just to pick up on that point, it is interesting, however, although we don't have the state system, we do now have the uh, more... Uh, localised approach to policing with police and crime yeah. commissioners. And actually what we have seen, uh, possibly the one good thing that's come out of that <laughs> policy, is the fact that in certain counties, uh, police forces in conjunction and given political cover by, political, by police and crime commissioners have actually basically said, we're decriminalising cannabis within our county. And we have had that in four or five police forces. And actually, no one's noticed, which shows how soft this argument is in terms of trying to win it. Yeah, I mean, Ron, Ron Hogg in Durham, I think, was the first PCC to really push that out. And it makes sense from a policing perspective. If you've got finite resource, deal with the thing that's actually going to causing the most harm to people. And actually, possession 
just really isn't causing that much harm to people. And so a lot of people you know, say, let's deal with that once we've dealt with every other type of crime. That will obviously never happen. Ian Dunn, you, you're at the coalface in a lot of ways of this issue. You, you pour through the evidence, you're, you're at Parliament, you're seeing the debates in action. Would you say that th this could come from a stealth action, as Ian Birrell just said, that it could come from PCCs deprioritising? But also, we've got devolved powers in Scotland and Wales, and Scotland are going ahead with some pretty possibly good reforms with safe consumption rooms and things like that. It has to, because it's not going to come through Westminster. I mean, certainly, not. I mean, I agree with your assessment of it. it's going to be the Tories again in, we presume, 2020, so that's turned until 2025. Now, I think that actually, and again, I agree that I think actually probably the Tories are the most likely direction for reform to come from, but not Theresa May. It is not going to come from her, unless there's a change there. That, that is a dead end. So for the time being, it's up to pursue other avenues. I mean, there's people in this room who understand probably the, the politics better than I do, who may be more optimistic, but, but I have to say I have zero optimism about any movement from this current administration. Even th there was an idea before that we could sell it. You know, she's very good with the Afro-Caribbean community. It could be sold as, look, this is really, really very damaging to these communities. You've got police that are going in, trying to secure, you know, cannabis warnings. It's very easy for them to go into an estate and just hoover up rather than going for sort of you know middle class kids in a cul-de-sac somewhere but it i mean those arguments have been tried with these guys and they haven't succeeded you know i mean there's been this sort of we've been there for years i mean i don't think people have never even really made the libertarian argument i mean this is the kind of thing that i, I find lots of drugs people talk about when they're in the pub together but in terms of when you're doing the public facing you never go for that you know you go for health outcomes you go for criminal justice outcomes because you know that's where the debate is. We've been shadowboxing that for a while, and to be honest, we're not getting very far. There hasn't been very much change. We've been completely left behind by the rest of, pretty much the rest of the West, certainly, you know, America, very, Portugal, other countries. And um, so I would suggest that if it is going to happen at all, it is going to be through those kind of actions rather than anything coming from Westminster. I'm sorry, I have almost no positivity to offer about that angle whatsoever. And I, I've kind of been critical. I did Scribius Pitt's podcast last week, and I was fairly critical of the reform world of how we have got a bit of a script now and things are done very much to a, a formula that isn't necessarily getting that far now. So how do we segregate it? What, what are the points that are going to impact on certain demographics? That's interesting, actually. Well, okay, I can't go into that much detail. And again, there'll be people in this room who could do that much better than, than I could. But actually, if you think about back to the Brexit moment, there were debates when, you know, you have the, the way that political people know how to debate. Here's a line to hit. Here's a line to hit. This makes sense. This, this polls well. We've got focus groups on it, whatever. And then instead, you had Brexit people just standing up there going, take back control. What do you like about the phrase, take back control? And that proved an incredibly compelling and powerful sort of argument, really. I wonder whether it isn't, you know, it would it be possible for drug people to start thinking as well in a slightly different manner. And maybe it is time for us to go back to sort of more core libertarian arguments and just go, well, who on earth is the policeman to tell you what you are and, and not entitled to do? However, there would still need to be some sense there, because still, if you start doing that with cocaine and heroin now, you're dead in the water. You know, there's no point trying to make that pure argument. The proof of concept place is cannabis, and it's medicinal cannabis, realistically. I mean, that's where those arguments have to come in and, and, and be heard. And then maybe, you know, once we got sort of the thin end of the wedge in there, we could start making it in a more radical way. But maybe, you know, there is something to learn by stopping to talk in that profoundly Westminster way that, that a lot of us have developed. And Julian, you've, you've been again on the front lines of this as serving as an MP for Cambridge. You must have had all sorts of things happen within your constituency that gives you a, a much more broader perspective than someone like myself that's 
angled at the computer, you know, you've been dealing with constituents. Is there a, a difference in the tones that you have to take within those circles? Uh, absolutely. Um, you always have to find the message that persuades the person you're talking to, otherwise there's just no point. Um, I went to a brilliant talk six years ago, actually about climate change, but um, it was a brilliant presenter um, who described that there are basically three groups of people. And there's one group of people she described as, as grass who are people who fundamentally agree with you on the core values of something. And that's great. They're the people we almost always talk to. But actually, in some ways, they're the ones you least need to talk to because they're already on side. The largest group of people she described as brick, which is people who don't really care about the value side, the philosophy side. They much more care about their environment, what affects them, their friends, their family, their street. Um, and there's a third group who are the people who she described as gold, who are the sort of the trendies. If something's trendy, they'll get engaged in it. If it's not, they won't bother. Can you be a gold brick? Uh, I'm sure you can. <laughs> um, there's clearly a line somewhere. But, you know, so she uses her example there, you know, something like David Cameron putting on a tiny little mini wind turbine on his house to show that he was green. It doesn't actually do anything. So we have to work out how not, not just to talk to the people who agree with us appropriately, the grass group, um, but to talk to those bricks and those gold people. How do we make it fashionable to want to see this change? And how do we really persuade people the sort of changes that we want will help their family? We'll help their street. We'll get the dealer away from near them. We'll mean that their kid isn't being, you know, whatever's happening. You know, they can control what they're doing. If we can win that group over, then we win massively. But we have to focus there. So, yes, encourage the grasses. But I don't think that's going to be enough. And I don't think the pure libertarian argument quite goes far enough and does make it so hard to deal with the people who say what you want is 11-year-olds, you know, on dope. I, mean, I think the last part will be able to easily counter. I think the big problem really is how you deal with that gap between cannabis and basically every other drug, where there is a very different uh, sort of place for the public in one than there is for the other. I think the public are ready now for movement on cannabis. They are so profoundly not ready for someone to legalise cocaine. And, and how we make that jump in rhetoric is very, very difficult indeed. I like the idea of trying to persuade the grasses on this issue. <laughs> um, uh, but I think the key is that, uh, first of all, it's very obvious that the first step is going to be uh, medicinal marijuana. Uh, that's been the big thing in America. Germany's about to go. We've seen, you know, Canada's going, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly that's the first area and the most, the softest underbelly of the whole debate to go for. And I think the one that could be changed very quickly. Having done that, we can see that after that, it's not a huge giant for the public, having got accustomed to that, to then go to the second step, which is reform with the whole cannabis market. Uh, I actually think, in a way, the cannabis debate is, is slightly irrelevant and dull because it's such a minor issue compared to the other problems. Um, and uh, the other problems are so much more important in terms of the damage they're doing in so many different ways. I mean, I go to Africa a lot. I'm involved in music, and uh, a country I love is Mali. Mali was wrecked, basically, by drug money coming in and uh, ex exaggerating the scale of corruption, which led to the collapse of the country. You know, what's the point of putting aid into a country if other other policies are causing its collapse. It's just nonsense. And we see that in other places as well. Uh, w to me, I think cannabis is interesting because we are getting change. We're clearly in a world of very fast change on the cannabis issue. It's absolutely inevitable that Britain will change too because when all the countries around us, Ireland, Germany, Portugal, the Czech Republic, uh, are changing, 
we will change as well. It may take two years, it may take five years, it may take 10 years, it may come from the Tories, it may come from Labour, we don't know, but Britain will change on this issue relatively imminently. Uh, the big challenge is to try and take that change and show that exactly the same arguments apply to other drugs, because the arguments there are times 100, and the damage being done there on every single level is so much more profound, whether it's to the communities in Mexico or Nicaragua and El Salvador, whether it's communities in inner cities here, whether it's on the health grounds, on whatever grounds, that's the really big battle to win. So in a way, personally, I find the cannabis debate, although interesting uh, and winnable, in a way, the Dulles debate, because the real challenge is the wider issue of having sensible drug reform on all drugs, because the current prohibition is so damaging and so illogical and so flying in the face of all the evidence. And actually, it, I think it just makes me angry. I think we can all agree with that, definitely. And it's interesting as well, because everybody's brought up the points as well of the parallels between certain movements as well, like climate change, what's going on in Africa. Is there a danger that Western civilizations such as ours can be quite selfish inherently about not caring about the immigrant, about not caring the transit com uh, countries that are really bearing the brunt of this drug war? Do we care about it in this country? No, absolutely not. I mean, people are innately selfish a lot of the time, and generally the political debate is conducted in that way. You don't really see policy change very often because of how it would affect an African country. You usually see policy change because it would affect Britain. I mean, that's just something you sort of have to accept and you have to work within that. You can sometimes make a security argument. I mean, that was quite powerful in the States, especially with, you know, as Mexico looked like it was tottering on the edge of just becoming a failed state because of their drug policy. You can then twist it in that way. And there are parts of the left you know, who will respond to these arguments, but they were going to go with you anyway because, you know, you're talking about reforming drug law, so. And we've had the Global Commission report come out just after the tide effect, the tide effect that was in association with Vault Face over here. If you wave to us, guys. There you go. There's Alistair and Henry from Vault Face. Um, and the Global Commission was pretty much the same day and then the press conference after that, and they focused very much on the international side of things and how people like uh, countries like Southeast Asia as well having coercive treatment, which is something that we're not remotely addressing here is even though we have the same sort of ethics of policing drug law reform means basically you're ushering people towards a service they might not necessarily want. This happens especially in, in the Philippines at the moment, which is unfathomable what's going on there. Is there a danger that if we ignore those warning signs of what a real punitive policy is, is that we could start ushering towards that if we just don't have the compassion on our side? You mean domestically? Domestically, yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's much more authoritarian that we could possibly go. I mean, we've banned imaginary drugs. I mean, I don't know what... <laughs> Very know, true. There's literally just, there's just not that many more avenues for, for us to pursue. I suppose we could ratchet up the sort of the punishment level. I don't think it's going to go that way. Almost, for, for a connected reason to the, to, the, to the fact that it doesn't seem to move very much, which is most of the time, unless they have to, I don't think politicians really want to go anywhere near the drug debate. It's almost like, you know, when you talk about abortion, people say, well, look, we should have a right to an abortion rather than this absurd, antiquated system where actually, you know, you need two doctors to sign off on mental physical... It's the same thing. Politicians think, I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about abortion in the name of God. You know, it's, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's a hospital pass, basically. So, I mean, I, I tend to think that drugs falls into that category. So they won't even go near it to toughen it up unless there's a tabloid scare campaign over, you know, the laughing gas or something like that. I mean, you know, we could get nastier. I mean, you know, the death penalty, I don't think it'll come back in this country, but we do see it elsewhere. I think part of the problem is there's still a huge stigma on the idea of a politician, for example, admitting having used any drugs. You know, we're still in that place where people are quite scared to be outed 
if they say things. I mean, you know, I, I can say this partly because I'm sufficiently boring. I've actually never tried any of them, which is really <laughs> sad and tragic of me. But there really is that sense. People don't want to step out on it. There's a whole series of issues, anything to do with pornography, anything to do with drugs, anything to do with abortion, where people feel a bit shy about saying it. We're just making a bit of progress on mental health issues, but until recently, politicians wouldn't admit ever having had a problem. And we need to get beyond that, where people don't feel ashamed that it gets revealed that they you know, had a few spliffs when they were younger. You know, quite a lot of politicians have actually had spliffs. Shock. Are we ever going to get to the point where politicians will say that they enjoyed it? That's what I'm waiting for. They always seem to have such a dreadful time. One wonders what people do it in the first place. I hope so. I mean, people should just be honest about these things. And, you know, that would actually help the debate, whereas currently there is this idea that people have to have been always perfect. I hope that will change and the tabloid grab will weaken, but we're, we're not quite there yet. Equally, it doesn't actually matter one way or another whether a politician has taken drugs or not. That's not the issue. The issue is, and I think that actually is such a red herring, this idea that politicians, I think politicians sh shouldn't answer. It's irrelevant whether they've taken drugs or not. What matters is what their policies are and whether they're doing the right thing and whether they understand the bigger picture. And yes, there are charges of hypocrisy. And it is offensive when you've got a president of the United States who admits to taking cocaine. And yet America was for a long time under him pushing draconian drug laws around the world. That is hypocritical. It does further the breach in faith with the public and the, elect and the politicians. But actually, to me, it's a bit of a red herring, this obsession with, hey, you know, have you ever taken drugs or whatever? This question is the policy and the right policy or the wrong policy. And it should be about shaming them on the policy, not what they may or may not have done themselves. The trouble is it always comes up. So, I, mean, whether we like, I mean, obviously, you're, you're, you're morally and logically correct. But when, whenever you sit down, it's this and smoking are the only things you always get asked about personally. You're like, oh, well, are you a smoker? Are you a it always comes up, I think, because it is a personal consumer issue, ultimately. That when, whenever you do a TV or it's, it's part of the discussion, I think, and doubly so for MPs. Although I think it's true that we need to get away from it. How you do that, I think, is another matter entirely. It looks super shifty if you start refusing to answer. Or... Do you think they misgage it as well, but politicians? Because when Crispin Blunt came out with the Psychoactive Substance Act and said, look, I'm a Poffers user, from our perspective, you know, and it's probably quite biased because of our realms that we work in, is that it was well-received. It was finally someone's actually being honest about this situation. If there was more honesty, would it be better received? Certainly, I was very struck by Bob Ainsworth, the Labour, uh, former home, home Office Minister, who, if you know Bob Ainsworth, he's about the most unlikely drugs campaigner you could imagine. <laughs> and if you went into Parliament and lined all the politicians up and said, who's the least likely drugs campaigner, he'd be up there. And he, when he stopped being in the um, Home Office, he came out and said... It's insane. You know, what I saw was just bonkers and became a very passionate drugs reformer. The shame, of course, is that so many politicians do it once they've stopped being politicians and how few do it while they are politicians. And, of course, that's the challenge, to persuade them to have the guts and come out what they all know privately, or most of them know privately, and what most of them privately will say, which is that there should be drug reform, but they're scared to touch it. I mean, I think we are seeing a change in that. So 20 years ago... MP calls for legalisation of cannabis would have been a front-page story on every single newspaper. Mm. And that has changed. You know, slightly to my frustration, MP calls for legalisation of cannabis. Couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't get a mention in my local paper for it. Um, and, and we are seeing that normalisation. You know, Deputy Prime Minister calls for drugs reform, just about cut through, but not in the way that it would have done 20 years ago. I think politicians are actually just behind the times. So they still think this is a live wire. And actually, it's been disconnected from the mains for ages. And you can say it, and the, the heavens don't fall in. There's hardly any papers left supporting <laughs> prohibition. I mean, there's really just the mail, mail. in terms yeah. of the problem. Yeah. You know, the sun has gone. I mean, it's pretty much done. And, and in fact, and this sounds like 
super, you know, metropolitan liberal London, but that's exactly, you know, it's very rare to sit around in political policy circles and hear someone challenge the argument against reforming drug law. I almost never come across it until you're talking to an MP. And even then, most of the time, they'll sort of go like, well, but actually, I mean, we know it's a bit funny, but, you know, there's just no movement there because of Dacre and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, really, I mean, the argument's sort of done with the press and um, with policy. Yeah. And this, this, we got evidence as well that a lot of MPs agree with the position of reform. There was the, I think it was the UK DBC, wasn't it, that, that yeah. did an anonymous poll and three quarters support reform of, of some degree or another. And yet, you, when it gets to the re- on the record position, they quite often just shy away from that. So is there a, something that the general public can do to usher that in, that we can have a more of an honest discussion and culture? I mean, I think the root, there's... As you've said already, there's, there's been some important changes recently. One is the whole idea of having police people coming out and saying it. The other is the brilliant group, Anybody, Anyone's Child, yeah. who um, to me has been the most, one of the most amazing interviews I've done, whereas I met a, a, a beautiful couple up in the Isle of Man called the Lakemans, who were, they'd lost both their kids on one night to ecstasy, teenage boys and were obviously utterly distraught by the tragedy that they'd been through. But they had the courage to actually, uh, he particularly had come out and said, what has helped kill my children is prohibition. And that movement of parents who are bereaved, I think is possibly the most powerful advocate there is, because they're really getting to the heart of all this. They're people who have lost children, uh, you know, had the most terrible tragedy imaginable happen to them. And they've turned that and they've found the strength from that tragedy to actually fight to stop other parents and other people going through what they've suffered. And to me, I think that's the most amazingly powerful campaign because that gets so much to the heart of the debate and to the right people. And it just strikes home in such a powerful manner. I think that deserves a round of applause to anyone's child. And we also have Chris Ford in the audience, which I spotted as well, from the IDHDP, which I think is another organisation that is just extremely powerful, of International Doctors for Healthy Drug Policy. It's, how can you argue with that as well, when you've got that, that sector as well that's arguing for a more evidence-based approach, and you've got LEAP, which is organising police forces to kind of come forward? To me, the challenge is to get more sectors to come out, I and mean, I've been very disappointed why we hear nothing from the international development world. Why do all these charities are out there claiming to be saving the world? Why do they stay silent on an issue which is causing so much damage? Because they're scared and because they get funds from the government. It is. You hear nothing from them. I know because I've spoken to campaigners who have spent a long time trying to persuade them. There's one group which has come out and said something strong on it. As far as I'm aware, there's now two. I'm afraid right now I can't remember off the top of my head, but the one that shocked me the most was Christian Aid. So, you know, Christian Aid is the solitary one who came out, and that took a lot of persuasion. None of the others have come out. And yet this is doing so much harm. Why are they staying silent? If they came out, Amnesty Anti Development Group, if they were to come out, that would again create a lot of waves. It's like scientists, it's like doctors, it's like parents, it's like police people. These are trusted bodies in the modern world. No one trusts journalists or doctors. Uh, No one trusts journalists or politicians. (laughs) Sorry, they trust doctors. But people do trust these sorts of groups and that's why it's important they come out and we get more of these groups to come out and start persuading people because these are people who are trusted on an issue where people are slightly nervous. You've written for the Daily Mail, and this is an area that I think most people would like to have a discussion on. Is what it's, and also you put out again reasoned pieces on the Daily Mail as opposed to. I don't want to be getting into the habit of 
dismissing the Daily Mail because that doesn't help our cause either. But you, when you wrote in a very different tone is what I guess I'm trying to say. When you do write that, what is the reaction that you get back? Is it the usual Daily Mail read that we would imagine? No, I think there's a lot of misconceptions. <clears throat> I mean, I do get asked a lot about the papers I write for. I also write for The Guardian, although I think their policies on aid are ridiculous. Even when I was deputy editor for The Independent, I wrote, you know, I had leaders which I disagreed with. So I'm very happy to write for The Mail, and I love the fact that when I write for The Mail, I'm talking to a huge audience, much bigger, of people who may not share my views on this issue. And to me, that's far more important, and I love doing that. And actually, the reaction is really good. When I wrote the piece about the Lakemans, the comments underneath were just amazing supportive and I think what it shows when you write about it some of them are hostile uh, particularly coming from me uh, but others are very supportive and I think what it shows is that actually there's much more nuance out there and there's much more openness and if you present the arguments in a evidence-based realistic uh, I think probably non-libertarian manner that actually you strike home to people because people have reason people understand people think about it and people are quite smart and also you know it doesn't matter what paper you, you read, where you live. The issue of drugs permeates across society now. It's a generational thing. At one stage, there were generational issues in that it only really affected younger generations going back you know, a few decades. Now, of course, every country, everyone's grown up. I mean, my 94-year-old father was persuaded when my sister, obviously he didn't listen to me as a journalist, but my sister's a doctor, and when she came out and made the arguments, he realized actually it was ludicrous for him to have the views. And I think you see that with the papers. You see that the Daily Mail has a readership of possibly 10 million people. And if you talk to them, obviously lots of those people are not going to share your views, but lots of them are very open, lots of them are engaged with the arguments. And that's completely key. As you said, you're possibly reaching an audience that wouldn't be converted. And that's what we absolutely need to do within the discussion we're having is spread out those circles. And in, in politics.co.uk, again, you've, you write from a, quite a neutral platform, don't you? So, again, there's no bias either which way, <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> but what kind of reaction do you have? when Because you, you write extensively on drug policy and done. You, you're constantly analysing the different policy issues that are coming through. What are the reactions that you predominantly get? The distinction get? there is because, you, because you're writing for a platform that is new and young, people will come to you because of the stuff that you're writing about. So, generally, they're coming because they have a set view on this. It couldn't be further away from your example of where it's a set, sort of almost heritage sort of brand people are there anyway and you get to talk to them it's, it's a very different relationship you have with people and typically speaking the kind of people that come to read an article which is about the facts of why you know banning cannabis doesn't do anything to stop people doing cannabis and does blah, 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 are going to be exactly the kind of people that you would expect them to be which is basically probably like the kind of people in this room um, I mean, there's no, there's no point beating around the bush on that. You, you don't really get to reach out too much. And there is a problem, I think, with the way that we conduct our debate online, and this is getting worse and worse with, you know, digital echo chambers, that we increasingly find it difficult to speak to people who don't hold our view. Very few of us enter into a debate honestly thinking, what are the facts on this, and I'll base my opinions around it. We tend to think, if it's a fact that doesn't correspond to our opinion, I just want that out of my face right now. If it's one that does, good, this will help me win arguments in future with people who I know to be wrong. And that tends to be you know, the, 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 the manner in which we approach information online. Now, that needs to change, but that, again, is bigger than drugs. I mean, that is something cultural and, and social that we're going through right now, which I think has potentially extremely dangerous consequences. And I would point to the President of the United States of America as one of them. Um, or sorry, the President-elect. <laughs> Obama's fine. Um, uh, so no, I mean, that, that's an issue, but that's actually more about how we do digital debate and how we do journalism online. And I'm afraid that, that there are very few incentives to, to write about things that aren't what you already believe in. You tend to do better when you give people what they want. 
And Julian, we kind of touched on it earlier, but being an MP of Cambridge uh, in the last term, you're going to obviously, well, I'd imagine, hit pretty middle England demographics, which are the areas that we really need to kind of hook in into this. What are the? How can we get more of those people on the hook to actually take notice of this issue? I'm just trying to think back. I mean, I had loads of people who got in touch with me about all sorts of different things. I mean, 36,000 pieces of casework, whatever the actual figure was. And other than when there was a campaign which I was helping to run to get people to write to their MP to go to the debate I was running with Caroline about drugs, I don't think I got very much correspondence at all about drugs policy. It's not something which most people are engaged in. When there was, it was mostly people saying that, you know, there are people dealing outside my house and it's really annoying because I'm trying to get some sleep. It was that sort of problem rather than dealing with the core problem. You know, I absolutely sympathise. I can imagine it's really annoying. (laughs) But, you know, we don't fix it by getting more police around because when the sirens just keep you awake instead, it doesn't doesn't fix the problem. Um, So it just didn't come up all that much. Um, I mean, the guy who beat me was very clear that he opposed any sort of reform. I'm Labour MP clearly he opposed any sort of reform on drugs policy, which I think goes back to what we've been saying earlier. But I don't think that was a factor in it. I, don't, I just don't think it was a big drive. I mean, if anything, calling for drugs reform was, was a positive. So is it, is it almost a non-issue then, do you think? We, you know, again, we work in a sector, so we do have that echo chamber we just spoke of, but the average person, do they care? I think that's very true. I think when you talk to politicians, they say, why should I? What's, what's that a gain for me? Because it's not an issue which they're getting a lot of flack on. It's an issue which most people aren't that bothered by, and it doesn't matter as much as your local hospital or your doctor's surgery or your dentist or the school or the job market or whatever. These are more uh, immediate issues for most politicians, and I think that's the difficulty, that it just isn't. Whenever I've raised it with politicians, that's sort of the reaction I get, which was kind of, why should I bother? Is that though our fault in a way because we're not explaining the debate well enough to, to make people understand how many different ways they are affected by it? I mean, maybe a bit. But the, the truth is that you know, if you try to write about prisons, it's very hard to get any traction on that because most people haven't experienced a prison. You need to... The only time I really had any success writing about that was just to make everything about Chris Grayling and how dreadful he was. Because everyone loves self-identifying as someone that hated Chris Grayling, and that allowed you an in to start talking about what conditions are like in prison. And with drugs, it's exactly the same. I mean, they are everywhere. It is a shadow society that lives on, on ours. You know, where on, in the normal mainstream world, everyone's all dressed up and all fine. And then as it happens... Lots of them have a secret drug habit that they have to do, and then they go on and they have their respectable jobs in banks and politics and journalism and blah, blah, blah. It's there, but because it's shadow, because people don't talk about it, because most parents, unless something terrible happens, like the only one's child sort of examples, don't know that their kids are doing it and the dangers they could get in by the fact it's illegal. It's very, very easy to ignore. And I think because it is so easy to ignore, it's one of the reasons it's so hard to get a politician to just take a risk on it. But it's also strange because in some ways what's happened is, particularly with cannabis, we've won the argument. And I think people are genuinely surprised that people are imprisoned for possession of cannabis. You know, if you talk about that, they're shocked that that actually happens. There's this sense that it's sort of de facto legalised without actually being legalised. So it's this very strange thing that there always isn't the fight because people think we've won it, why hasn't the law changed yet? And in some ways, that's a really unhelpful place to be because it doesn't actually get us over the line to an actual solution. But I, I don't know what the latest figures are, but a few years ago, there was about 1,000 people a year imprisoned for possession. You know, not for tr- dealing or anything like that, just for possession. You know, People are shocked by that figure. It doesn't feel right. And I think you know, it is right, or it was a couple of years ago. We need to get that across. I think one thing which would be good is if there is a way of... One thing politicians do respond to is 
large mailings, as long as they're nothing to do with 38 degrees. Um, and so if there was a way, trust me on that one, if there was a way of getting lots of people to write to their MPs on this issue and saying, could you take an action, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter what, that will start to kick more people over. You know, I used to regularly have more people write to me about why we should continue to encourage homeopathy on the NHS than about many other subjects. You know, why is there not that group just saying, look, make sure this actually happens and kick it over the line? Is this what explains your very strongly supportive attitudes towards homeopathy that you've demonstrated throughout your career? <laughs> I, I, I think homeopathy should be uh, legal. It, you know, sugar cubes are fairly safe, pure water's fairly safe. <laughs> just the NHS shouldn't pay for it. <laughs> I think we'll have to do a stop and search on homeopathy. I think it's crying out for it. There's a, there's a question that I've been asking fairly recently, and it's quite quite divisive because it, it does pretty much put you into one or, or either camp. Is will reform come from the top down, from government level down to society, or is it one of those issues where society has got to take the lead and push it towards the top? I mean, it, you know, it, it depends on when it happens. And like we're, like we're saying, I mean, for the next 10, 15 years, it, if it's going to come from anywhere, and I don't think it will, it's going to come from bottom up, you know, the smaller democratic structures. If it happens after that, it, it could come from anywhere at all. But you need people with sense and bravery and an interest in evidence in Downing Street. And at the moment, that looks very far away. I mean, I think that's right. Um, I, I was one of the people who wrote the Lib Dem manifesto for 2015. Huge success that was. Um, and that had a lot of stuff on drugs reform. And part of the plan was if there was a coalition with either side, one of our requirements might well be to actually kick us over the line. We thought that Cameron in particular might well be up for being forced by those nasty liberals to do something on this area. As it happens, history didn't quite play out like that. Um, but, you know, it's still something which we'd politically love to see. And if that means that w we are used as the excuse to enable somebody else to do it, I don't care, happy to be somebody's excuse for doing the right thing. Ian Birrell, what do you think? Do you think top-down or bottom-up? I suspect, good question, I suspect probably a bit of both. I think um, it may come from bottom-up in terms of things like the police uh, changes and, and effectively decriminalising in their own areas. Uh, although that's caused so little stir, it may come from bottom up just where the police think it's just not worth our waste of our resources separate to that. It may come from top down because the pace of change is so fast elsewhere in the world that eventually the government just looks stupid by, you know, being the only country in Europe that hasn't done anything. So I, don't, I think we don't know. I think all we can do is keep pushing on both fronts and keep pushing and keep trying to get more voices to come out in more different spheres and try. I mean, I think the most striking thing of this conversation is really... Um, the idea that actually it's just not a, a pertinent issue, which is what you were saying, and you don't get the post bag on it, and for MPs, they don't need to take the risk. So I, I would suspect what needs to be done is to get more and more pressure to try and drive it up the agenda, however that is done, whether it's through writing letters and sending emails, whether it's done through clever campaigning, such as some of you guys are doing, uh, whether it's done through widening the scope of voices on it. Uh, I think it's just, and, and again, by pointing out what's happening abroad, um, but I think probably it's combination which will actually affect change. I also think change when it comes will be very sudden and uh, we'll suddenly look back and think, my God, that's happened and wasn't it crazy that we used to have prohibition? And uh, I think it will be very fast and I think that's what we're seeing around the world. I mean, step back 10 years ago and think about the changes we're seeing now, not just in North America, but in Canada, in Germany, in Ireland, in Portugal, in the Czech Republic, in Uruguay, and other countries as well. I mean, there's a country in Asia which is looking at legalizing crystal meth. 
Um, it's not the Philippines. Um, uh, so, you know, this change is happening very, very fast around the world. And at some stage, Britain will, I think, catch up. And I think it'll happen very rapidly when it happens. This is what the tide effect said as well, the vault face uh, report over there, is that when change happens, it doesn't always come with outrage. It just kind of segues in. I mean, I think that's right, that it will happen suddenly. And there's a, a question about how prepared we are for it when it happens and how far can we push in one go? Because these things stick for decades and then suddenly leap. And it would be quite good if it leapt a long way. So how ready are we when it starts to move to really kick it along rather than just make a tiny step? And then we keep coming back here saying, well, we've got this far. OK, we've now got another 17 steps like that to go. But equally, we're not very good because we were talking earlier about the whole issue of skunk, which at the moment is branded as this sort of thing which is causing a lot of parents alarm. Now, the problem with the whole skunk issue, I think, is it's weakening support for cannabis legalisation because there is a perception that it is a very dangerous thing, that it, it does psychological damage. Now, what needs to be argued against that is, yes, there are problems with it, particularly at a young age and particularly in people who are predisposed to mental health issues. But the problem is it's illegal. Illegality, and that's the danger. It's the illegality which makes the problem worth. It's the illegality which has driven up the potency of the drug. It's the illegality which makes these problems there. And we've been very bad, I think, collectively, at taking on, for instance, the skunk issue. So I don't think we're very well prepared, and I don't actually think we're very good at, at putting across a lot of our arguments because we're losing that battle. Yeah, I think you know the other line which fits with that is that we've had a system which has actually pushed people onto more dangerous things, away from less dangerous things, which is actually absurd policy to have. It's quite frustrating, isn't it? I mean, I, I dabble in writing, Huffington Post, Virgin, things like that, politics.co.uk I've written before. <laughs> and, and, and and also our, our policy and communications officer, Dave Sullivan, has written for politics.co.uk. And if you do take on the skunk issue specifically you can quite often look like you're trying to myth-bust. And if you are myth-busting, then the chances are that you're taking a position of giving that issue credence when there kind of is none. So how do you get around that? How do you explain something that is such a misnomer in terms of what the policy is doing and yet get across to the average person that knows nothing about it? Because if we go back to the discussion earlier about you've got this big middle group that you're trying to win over, right now I would guess, and I don't know the evidence on it and I haven't studied it, but I would guess the majority of you among those people we've got to win over is that there is this uh, raging issue of skunk which is doing severe damage to large numbers of people. Now that is the prevalent uh, thought, I would guess, among the people that we most need on our side. Therefore, I think by ignoring it, you're not going to win that battle. Therefore, I think you've got to confront it and take it on. There's a weird thing with myth-busting at the moment. I think it's because of the post-truth sort of debate took over. And so everyone's like, well, why myth? You know, there's no point in myth-busting because nobody cares about what actually happens to be true or false anymore. A, I do not accept that. B, I mean, how you present facts is how you do it. I mean, if you just, you know, blew a headline going why you are wrong on the following facts using data, then obviously no one's going to read it. But, uh, but as long as you present it in a vaguely compelling way, I don't see why it can't happen. The second part then is... Who are you writing for? And I think a lot of the time, you know, especially if it's, if it's a sort of UK level, if it's definitely online or in, in that sort of swirl where a lot of Westminster people are and a lot of journalists are reading, it's about winning the debate. Then when you're going to, you know, if you're doing something on the BBC or if you're, you know, writing something in The Sun, that is not the place for you to win a debate. That is the place for you to try and convince people in the real world and mainstream society what your case is. I think that's always about just knowing who your audience is as you write a thing and also trying to think, well, you know, just myth-busting is part of the methodology with which I approach 
um, compelling writing rather than an end in and of itself. I think that that has to be the approach. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm going to hand over here, if it's all right, because we've got our secretary over here, Becky. And Becky and I are completely different because Becky's an academic. I'm not remotely, I think it's fair to say. I, I'm pretty much, yeah, see. We've got this constant discussion, haven't we, Becky, of how do we approach to get information across the people in academic terms on, and on, on evidence, but in, in language people can understand. How do you reckon we do it? I think the key thing really is accessibility. I mean, I could give you a table, um, I could give you SPSS data, which is kind of statistics, and I could say to you, you know, decode that. Or what I could do is I could give you a diagram and a nice picture. And I think what we fail to do so many times is take all of these statistics that are incredibly powerful and present them in a snapshot manner that somebody can just look at a picture and say, oh, my word, it's really bad. And I think where we go wrong is, so like me and Jason and Neil and, and Julian and people have, have done this for years, is that we forget that we are using language that to us is quite normal. <laughs> and then we go up to somebody and start yapping and they're like, what on earth are you on about? So I really do think that it's not only academics that live in ivory towers, I think it's some reforms as well that we need to come down and start making this information very quick we live in a quick society it's boom so i I think visuals right the way through that's really interesting as well because i mean we're not in the westminster bubble by any stretch of the imagination i i'm up here in westminster a lot but at the same time i then go back to a small town in kent that's very much lower socioeconomic (laughs) becky's from up north and becky's from up north so not (laughs) (laughs) not i'm not i'm going to be insulting half of our podcast listenership Oh, now I've been cut off. That's Nikki censoring <laughs> me as I go. Yeah, I know. And and we do. We we get to have conversations, don't we, with people that don't understand the political landscape or the language. So again, visuals. Do you think they can impact on that? Yeah, and I think there's another way of approaching it. Well, because as well, because people are saying, you know, this has social harm, and cannabis, you know, leads to harder drugs. And it strikes me that there's nobody actually bringing all of this together. 
and it's something that you know I've talked about in other meetings that we have all of these islands of information and nobody's actually build, actually building bridges between all of these islands to say okay this is a complete 360 degree view of how bad it is and this is how this impacts on this and this impacts on that and I think the main argument that we're missing with cannabis is the social gateway and people say, you know, oh, that's not going to happen to my child. Well, actually, if your child's 14 years old, when they leave that house, you have very little control over what they do. And if cannabis was regulated, you know, they, they wouldn't have access to harder drugs. So I think it's, there's a lot of things that we could do that we aren't doing as well as maybe we could. Because I mean, that's a lot of the stuff that Volpass has been doing with bringing sort of groups together in order to get them talking to one another. That's interesting, that, because that... I don't want to hark back to the Professor David Nutt stuff. Remember, that is what the Home Office hired him to do, was come up with an objective assessment of drug harms. And that involved getting in a room with, yes, a doctor, but also a social worker and a policeman and assess all the possible harms that a substance can do and start rating them on a scale. The thing is that as soon as he answered that question, they sacked him because it was literally unsayable. I mean, you just can't start saying, well, look, magic mushrooms are perfectly harmless and alcohol is in fact a very, very dangerous drug indeed. So the political discussion, no matter how far we get with all of that development, is so far behind that it will penalise you for simply saying the truth that emerges from those kind of joined-up discussions. And until that changes, there's a real sort of ceiling to what we can achieve. Do you think we're going to get ever increasingly polarised from this point on? Because you could argue that the, the position that does support prohibition can be quite farcical. It can be based on moralising, it can be based on shouting, quite frankly. And the position of reform we like to think it's based on evidence, but we do our own set of moralisings as well. But is there a position where it is going to start getting further and further apart on the polls? I I think that's happening to lots and lots of issues now. And I think there's a real problem with, you know, there used to be a sort of standard bell curve distribution of people with some on the left, some on the right, but mostly around the middle on many issues. And it's now becoming two completely separate groups on things like Brexit, things like Trump, where each half doesn't understand the other half at all. You know, completely different set of facts, views, whatever. You know, I think my lot are right and the other lot are wrong. That doesn't help given that the other lot think the opposite. I don't think that's the case with this because I just don't think there is that strong a push the other way. There's a handful of people who, who go around articulating the prohibitionist line and there's a lot of people who don't do anything about it. But I just don't, you know, it, it's not a 52, 48% thing. It's a, you know, there's 1% who want to stick with prohibition, if that. Actually, that's interesting. There's also people don't self-identify or very rarely do by their views on drugs. So when we talk about Brexit, when we talk about Trump and issues like that, immigration as well, actually, is one of them, they do self-identify via this issue. And so they tend to get lost in these quite tribal camps where it's all about taking pot shots and this sort of trench warfare against each other. It's very rare that someone self-identifies as, as, as a position on the drug reform. And I think that kind of saves us from falling into that kind of position. Yeah, that's a big advantage, actually, in mm. the current world where everything is so divided and so argumentative. That's a real advantage that actually can be built on. Yeah. And, and we do, we have, Neil's done the medium rounds because of, where is it, let's, let's plug it again, because of good, bad war, Neil's done the medium rounds quite comprehensively, and, and 
pretty much has only been George Galloway, I think, hasn't it, that's been put up in opposition towards you. And Pete Hitchens, obviously. I had a, I had a huge run-in with the... Uh, I did the week on this issue, and Alan Johnson was on it, and I raised the David Nutt thing. And it's everyone said afterwards, that's the only time they've ever seen him get angry. He really lost it with me. Oh, so I, it's I interesting. I thought it, he was quite vulnerable on it. It was quite striking how annoyed he got. And, of course, Alan Johnson was at the forefront of that whole debacle, wasn't he? You know, him and Jackie Smith. And he did. He got noticeably irked by it. And, and, and yeah, he's quite moderate in other issues, isn't he? So it's another one of those positions where... Is it just that he's just not thought it through? Is it what no, influence? I think with that one, is, uh, it doesn't look good when you ask someone to come up with evidence and then sack them when they come up with the evidence. Yeah. So I think that's the fact you're pointing out a very large Achilles heel. And are Labour likely to be set in that position now under their current form? Do you think they're still going to be making up for that, the, the lack of continuity they had on the classification system? Are they likely to renege and go back for a reform position? Can not really notice what uh, Labour are doing these days. I mean, I, I think Labour are just so all over the shop on pretty much everything at the moment. Um, I wish it weren't so. Uh, I mean, Diane Abbott, the debate I mentioned earlier with uh, that I organised with Caroline Lucas, Diane was reasonably good on it. Um, she's Shadow Home Secretary now, but how much influence she has, I, you know, where the investigatory powers bill, the sort of state surveillance thing, which came out, and she wrote a, a good piece in the Morning Star um, saying how awful it was the day after it had passed. And it vaguely seemed like saying that a bit beforehand or even voting against it might have been more useful. Um, there's, some possibility that, there's some possibility that Labour would take a more sensible position, but at the moment I think they're so busy trying to work out their fundamental positions, this isn't top of their list. I think during the leadership, I think Corbyn did say, didn't he, he, he went as far as medicinal cannabis and no further, which was interesting because all of a sudden he became quite conservative. The rest of the time, he's all like, oh, let's just launch a Maoist revolution. And suddenly it was a much more sort of, sort of modest and controlled and sounded like a professional politician. So even Corbyn on that thing suddenly seems to get the fright and step back. I agree. Working out what a Labour policy position is right now is, is for the birds. Like, it just can't be done. And Corbyn was, uh, I think, two years previous, he did a press conference at the UIDPC. Again, he supported decriminalisation. He was on record as doing that. And yet, in office, it seems to be the typical thing again. Once you get there, things change. Is, why is that? I, I don't want to hand over to you in this, Ian, but it's an obvious example to use that David Cameron was very forward-thinking when he was in 2002 when he was uh, sort of a backbencher, but then getting into power, that whole start has changed again. Is, why does this happen? I think in his case, he got a lot of flack. And uh, again, it wasn't worth expending the political capital that he had at the time on an issue which wasn't central to what he was trying to do and what um, the public wanted. So I think it's a sort of, you know, it's for politicians, they have to work out what issues to really fight for, what, where do they spend their political capital? And I think that goes back to the to thing we've talked about that it's not worth expending political capital on this. So I think, you know, that, that is an issue. Just, I mean, to pick up on that, how many people in the room would change who they voted for if that party decriminalised drugs, let's say? How many of you are sort of already know roughly who you're going to vote for but would change it? So it's a fairly small number. You know, and that's of people who really care about this. I'm seeing, what, sort of six, seven hands, something like that. That, maybe eight, you know, that says something. That, you know, is Cameron going to do it if the net upshot is he gets a lot of flack and no upside? Although my argument, which I made to him, was actually it's a really good way to rebrand the Conservative Party and it goes against the grain and that this is something where you, people aren't expecting, so it shows that you're a new Conservative leader with a new Conservative Party and rebranding the party. 
which I got looked at and then... I mean, it's the right argument to try to make, but, yeah. you know... But actually, when I, I then wrote a pamphlet on it for um, the most liberal Tory pressure group uh, about why it was a very conservative policy, and they asked me to come and speak at the Commons about it, so I spoke, I was excited and spoke to this packed room, and at the end, uh, the guy chairing it said, well, that was really interesting, wasn't it? Of course, it's not our policy. Anyone got questions? So even there, they were disowning me when they'd asked me to speak, and that was the most liberal group in the party. So it does show there is a sort of fear factor in this, prob- in this issue. And, and it, we, we, we all raised it again of how the reform side, there's report after report, there's body after body that's calling reform, and yet the opposition, the, you know, the prohibition camp for, just to give it a, you know, a kind of a branding term, there's no real substance there, is there? There's no real meat to the bones of why they're, they're arguing for that position. Why can they get away of it and, and this side can't? This is not the whole of the explanation, but some of it has to lie with the tabloid press. I mean, we hadn't seen a drug scare way for a long time when we saw the legal highs one. It was based on nonsense. I mean, case by case nonsense in that each time they kept on saying it was connected to a drug, it often wasn't. It was a, sometimes, especially with the laughing gas stuff, it wasn't a chemical thing. It was just, you know, lots of people sort of, they put it in a bag and they choked on the bag. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff there that really didn't demonstrate that a sensible, sensible legislative approach would be the quite, quite mad piece, the bill that we actually ended up putting forward. But it doesn't make any difference because most of the time Westminster now functions not passing, and this is the crucial thing that I think people often don't understand, it doesn't pass policy for reality an awful lot of the time. A lot of the time it passes policy for perception of reality. You see this again and again, and in fact it's actually changed the way that politicians even talk. So very, very often, Theresa May, for instance, on, uh, on health tourism, we'll often say there's a perception of the problem out there that I need to address. Ian Duncan Smith said the same thing about his welfare reforms. You see it, especially with the way that Labour MPs talk about immigration. They know that it doesn't affect wages. They know that this is not the reason that their constituents are getting poorer. But that's to say, well, there is a perception of a problem out there and Labour has to respond to it. And so we get this sort of cycle, this system, where the press churns out this fear-mongering, abject nonsense, and politicians feel that they have to respond to expressions and perceptions of concern. And so there we go, all of it utterly divorced from reality. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. There's lots of pieces of legislation passed to to make a gesture with no purpose. There was the the Sarah Act, the Social and uh, Responsibility and Heroism Act. If you jump into a river to save a drowning child, you won't be done for trespass. It's like, well, who actually... prosecuted people trespass so they saved a life anyway but it was to show that you know this is a good thing there's this legislation at the moment about people wearing um medals that they weren't allowed to have you know is that really the big issue of the times but i think just to go back on the question it's not that the prohibitionists are winning it's that the policy isn't changing at the center it's not that it's you know there are people who want to make it tougher and that's not happening either it's that it's not moving so we haven't got the force to move it our way they certainly haven't got the force to move it their way it's just stuck. And actually, if it's moving anyway, it is tiny, tiny little steps, but moving in the right direction. It's just they're pathetically small steps. And at this rate, it'll take, you know, at least another thousand years to get to remotely where we want to get to. I'm going to start roaming in a minute. So if you've got questions, make sure you get them prompt up because we're going to start handing out to you in a minute. But just to kind of slightly wrap up in this section is... We can draw parallels to other movements, as we said. We've got, you know, Brexit kind of runs through it. We've got immigration that runs through it. I like to use examples, and this is going to be a show that we do in 2017 of how uh, the LGBT movement, how they came through the ranks over the decades and what they did to, to enact social change and what we can learn from them. Is there ways that we can learn from other social movements is what I'm basically asking. 
Well, I think there clearly is because social movements change and you've got to learn all the lessons. Uh, the thing that the example I always like is politicians say they have to respond to perception and they can't lead the public, they have to follow the public. I was very struck working with David Cameron when he was pushing the green stuff in those long gone off days. But when he started in gate pushing that as an issue, he drove it into the top three issues of public concern because he was standing up and he was being quite courageous and saying things on it and doing things and posing with huskies and putting windmills, whatever. He made it an issue and drove it up the agenda and the public perception actually changed in the right direction and the public put it into the top three issues that they were concerned about. So the thing I always point out is that actually politicians don't have to follow. Politicians can, dare I say it, lead. And it's something they seem to forget. And it's nice to remind them every now and then that politicians can show leadership. And to me on immigration, it's been the most scandalous failure where they haven't shown any leadership and have allowed a situation to get terribly out of control. But to an extent, we see it on this issue also, where there just is zero leadership. And those few people who do generally, when they retire, step over the threshold and start talking about it and raising it, all say exactly the same thing, which is the public are far ahead of where we are. And I don't even buy the stuff about the tabloid press, because A, the press is less strong than it used to be, and B, the sun is now pretty neutral on this, if not in favour. The sun has changed its position, uh, and there's actually a lot of support for this issue. The Telegraph has come out in favour of it in the past. The Economist has. You know, there is support for it, so I don't actually buy that. Uh, it's just, I think, fear by politicians combined with uh, the fact that they don't need to expend political capital on it, and that's the challenge, to force them into having to change change on this. The press is certainly changing, but, but of course, I mean, certainly you would think that the... the um Psychoactive Substances Bill was a response to the legal high scare. I mean, it is coming from there, obviously, and most of those scares are based on, on absolutely zero. So I think it's, it's true that the press's world is getting smaller, but it would be crazy to ignore those scares as they come up and the sort of reactive policy making that we see in response. I mean, I think the one sort of big social movement I was quite involved with was uh, legalising same-sex marriage. And in some ways, it's a great example of both what you're saying just before, Ian, about how the public got there first but also of trying to make the case that would persuade people. So to me, it's an equalities issue, and that, that's why I'm in favour of same-sex marriage. The line that finally persuaded Cameron was the fact that he was pro-marriage. And uh, you know, as a good traditional conservative wanted to see more marriages. If you allow same-sex couples to get married, there would be more marriages, therefore it's a good thing to do. Um, that's a very, very different argument at heart from the equalities argument that I would have been making. And so, for example, the corollary of equal civil partnerships which would make sense from an equalities perspective, didn't persuade him at all. It would mean fewer weddings. So it was the church bells argument that persuaded him. We need to find the equivalent argument here that will really persuade people. In a way, that's what we've talked about, because uh, it's about it not being a libertarian argument, but about being an issue of safety of um, crime or whatever. Um, the other interesting thing, of course, with the gay rights movement was the role of business. People often forget the role of business in affecting social change. Business was very quick to realize that actually there were issues here in terms of offering uh, specified insurance policies for gay couples, for instance, and they were ahead of the politicians. And again, I think the role of business is important. Business is moving very fast into the markets in America and beginning to make a lot of money and the internet is changing things and there's a lot of online activity. You know, business can see there's a lot of money to be made out of this. Some businesses are going to oppose it, i.e. 
the pharmaceutical companies are fighting hard against medicinal marijuana and the drink companies are going to fight very hard against recreational cannabis. But equally, there's a lot of businesses that want to get in. There's a lot of investment pouring into it. And I think in a, in a weird way at the moment, what we're seeing in Britain is the biggest dynamic of social change is coming from finance because business is beginning to invest very hard. The city is beginning to put money into it. It was noticeable that... that um, can't remember Jenkins, the guy from Barclays. You know, his next job is now investments in marijuana in California. There's a lot of money to be made, and that is a good thing in terms of engaging business and getting business on side. And people often ignore the role of business in affecting social change. And business can be a curiously progressive force in society because it's acting on a market-led thing. So I think what I'm going to do is a sort of brief defense of this libertarian thing and, and of this, the, the distinction actually between when we, when we argue tactically and when we argue from our hearts. And there's an, it's undoubtedly true, and if you've any emotion or social intelligence whatsoever, you always try to think, where, where is the person I'm arguing coming from? How do I best convince them by talking about their concerns? That's undoubtedly true. You're crazy not to do it. And, but there has been an industry that has been built up in this country of how to convince, and it is around that, is around thinking, look, here are our top five checkboxes, and if we just hit this and hit this and hit this, that's what brings the mainstream on board, because we've seen that they believe this. And I think for campaigners, it's important to, to see that that stuff does work, to take some of it on board, but also not to get disconnected from the point where you argue from original principles for the convictions that you hold and that you argue using very simple language and with a genuine sense of passion. And I think typically one of the lessons we've taken from the right, from the nativist authoritarian right over the last six months, is they're really good at doing that. And I just find liberals are growing worse and worse at doing that exact thing. And I think, well, we need to keep some of that strategic, sensible approach to it, especially in certain circles and especially in certain events. We also need to be thinking, how do I make the argument that corresponds to how I feel in my heart and in my guts and we can't afford to lose sight of it. But you can be passionate about those strategic arguments as well. You know, you can be really passionate about not wanting children to have things that are going to kill them, even if that's, you know, even if you're a libertarian as well. You can be passionate about wanting better health outcomes. You don't just have to say, you know, slightly especially, oh, well, you know, it will be a bit better. I agree. You can and, be and passionate those, about all of it. I accept that. And even if some of those arguments went too far, they would, the libertarian argument would cease to hold. So, for instance, if it was always the case that someone that smoked cannabis went on to heroin and could never stop doing it and would inevitably have a life of acquisitive crime, the libertarian argument would be mute anyway because they'd be losing options on the other side. So, of course, we stick to it. And, of course, you use the arguments to work. But by being strategic, by virtue of being strategic, it suggests that you're using it to win an argument rather than because of it's how you feel. And I think we do need to be careful to balance the two things, never to go fully into the policy wonk area and think, what is it that motivates me about this? How do I speak to people about the fact that I am committed to it and I believe in it and not allow the right to have all the emotional, I'm using right just like I promised I wouldn't <laughs> right at the beginning, to have all of the emotional arguments. So who's got a question then? Hi. Um, on the party politics of it, I'm a, I'm a little hopeful that there might be some movement within this parliament, or certainly some noise made. And bizarrely, it's because of Theresa May and Brexit. Now, when politics is defined by left and right, it allows the authoritarian left to suppress the liberal left and the authoritarian right to suppress the liberal or libertarian right. But now Brexit has given us a government that defines itself by being authoritarian. And to oppose Brexit, eventually those uh, from the liberal wings of uh, Labour and the Conservative Party are going to have to start talking to each other if they're going to deliver any kind of you know, sizable pushback. And that might create this sort of environment in which uh, drug policy can be discussed quite openly without being shouted down by the authoritarian wings of their own parties. 
do you think there's there's any legs in that? Any chance of a sort of liberal authoritarian realignment in politics, which I, I would say with Trump is is sort of going on, and perhaps Le Pen as well is going on across much of Western democracy. Or am I just desperately grasping at straws? <laughs> I mean, I think we're well overdue a realignment in politics. You know, we, we've been stuck for decades in this idea that left-right is what the argument is. Um, there was a piece in, I think it was the Times after Theresa May's conference speech, which said that she was being very left-wing if you were British and very right-wing if you weren't, which, which is trying to collapse the idea of authoritarian and nationalist into a left-right spectrum. It just doesn't make any sense. And I hope we will see that sort of realignment. I think it's going to be really tortuous. I think it's going to be really hard to get there. I, I, I sort of see it as a bit of grounds for pessimism, actually. Um, so there are a number of us. I do things. With, I'm the director of Joseph Rantry Reform Trust, for example, which tries to promote some of these plural things involved with More United and all sorts of other things, trying to get that change to actually happen because the tribal lines as they are currently just don't make very much sense. It's quite tough because there's so much tribal loyalty, you know, that there are these blocks. You know, why we've got Richmond Park by election coming up on Thursday. Why a Labour standing, knowing that the only consequence of that will be to help Zach Goldsmith get elected? You know, it's really painful. I wish we'd seen a proper realignment that gave us Brexit and anti-Brexit. You know, as it happens, you know, we're getting derided. Tom Watson was laying into us recently for being Brexit deniers. Now, I'm quite happy to do what I can to stop something I think is cataclysmically bad. You know, I'm quite proud of that. We haven't seen that realignment. It's going to take, I'm afraid, quite a long time to get there. Maybe when we do, we could have a proper liberal government. You know, that would be great with small L liberal. I mean, you know, I'd obviously prefer it as a Lib Dem one, but you know, um, but a small L liberal government then could do some of that. But I, I don't see that happening easily in the near future. I think the most depressing thing about Westminster politics is how tribal it is, and it's the thing I find profoundly disturbing and depressing, is just how tribal politicians are. And let's not kid ourselves, the Liberal Democrats on the ground are the most brutal, vicious street fighters there are. And the idea they're less tribal than any other party is a complete myth. They're actually, as, you know, they've done some of the most disgusting things, you know, going back to Tatchell and such like. Um, at all levels, there is appalling tribalism. People won't vote along the way they should because of tribal things. They won't adopt issues. They'll attack people. And it's very depressing. I hope there is going to be a realignment. Um, I think we're engaged in a process at this time where none of us have any idea where we're going. We don't really know what's happening. None of us know what's happening. We don't know what's happening in anywhere in the West. Uh, there's a rise in authoritarian worldwide democracy, you know, so much for the end of history. It's being challenged. It's being challenged by in all sorts of different ways. In Western countries, our sort of liberal values, which we've all got used to, are being challenged. And none of us actually have any idea where this is going to end up with. There's lots of nasty historical echoes, which we can all hear. Um, but as part of that, it could easily be. And there's all sorts of reasons for the disruption, whether it's, you know, everything from technology through to movement of people through to whatever. There's all sorts of reasons why the political system, I think, doesn't match uh, where we are in the world, both with the public and with attitudes and all sorts of things. I think there will be a realignment, but I have no idea how we get there and how devastating it'll be to get there uh, or where we end up. Uh, I, you know, you can see obvious Venn diagrams for where people overlap and where politics overlap and where parties overlap and don't overlap. And I think the left-right thing is a rather redundant 
uh, way of looking at the world these days. It's a sort of thing aimed at between capital and and uh, and ownership and such like and and labour. Uh, it is largely redundant now, I think. But equally, I just think anyone who tries to predict anything in this current world is just a plonker of the first degree. <laughs> I, I rather like the idea because it offers a glimmer of hope and emotional reassurance, and I'm searching for that, like you wouldn't believe, over the last few months. So that would be lovely. I, I, the trouble is, I mean, there's two sides. I mean, the first one is it, it, it is optimistic for us to think now that the liberal era is over, we'll have a better chance of getting liberal reform. It just doesn't, nothing suggests it. But secondly, it's that I think when liberalism makes itself felt again, it'll be through the prism of realism and being sensible. And basically, over the next few years, as the economic effects of Brexit start to bite and become real in people's lives, the way to get them back into the ballot box voting for you will be for liberal parties, liberal small L, to be saying, look, this is economically insane. We have a much more sensible middle way course, sort of a la Blair, and that's how we get back. And I think that kind of party would be even more averse to talking about, you know, marching with the hemp strewn hippies and all of that kind of stuff because it's all so wacky. They'll be very, very anti-wacky. And therefore, I think probably it won't, it won't end up that way. But nevertheless, I'll keep your idea close to my bosom because it makes me feel marginally better about the world. For the audio purposes, Julian was uh, quite fighting with replying to Ian Birrell's comments, though. There was a tussle with the microphone. Shall I, shall I? We've got a question here from Ian. It's more a question of um, the, the chemists and how they've altered things. And I think we're going to have a, a three-pronged attack that's going to hit the government and they're going to have to respond to it. One is the, the party drugs. We're seeing the stronger MDMA coming through. Um, Fiona Meacham and In The Loop are looking at testing at more and more festivals next year. Um, the, the war on drugs caused the new psychoactive substances. So it became difficult to import hashish. So then we imported... We, trafficked Vietnamese people into council flats and started growing skunk in the UK. And then when we clamped down on that, we ended up with spice. Clamped down on that, and now the people behind bars are making more money selling spice in prison than they were making selling drugs outside of prison. And if you saw the um, Secret Life of Prisons Dispatches programme the other week, there wasn't a cause for anyone to come up with liquid spice to spray on a child's painting or crayon drawing to send into prison until there was a market for it in prisons. And the third thing is the opioid crisis and fentanyl and then carfentanyl. Fentanyl is, what, a thousand times stronger than heroin? Carfentanyl is a hundred, maybe a thousand times stronger than that? The first criminal gang that imports from China a kilo of that into this country and puts it into the street heroin in Liverpool, Glasgow, Manchester and London in a weekend. There's not enough naloxone in the country or enough trained people to actually deal with that. And to last Wednesday, in the downtown east side of Vancouver, there were 384 ODs in a week. Put this in perspective, in 2015, there were 317 overdoses in the whole year. That's what it's doing there. Welfare Wednesday, every second week there, um, is something like two, $2 million Canadian gets spent on drugs. They get their checks, they go to the cash point at midnight, and they're out there having a party. 
I suspect that I should probably try and pick this one up as a chemist. Um, though I haven't actually designed any of the drugs you're talking about. Um, I'm, you know, pleased to say. Um, and I think you highlight exactly one of the problems. What we've done with the war on drugs is we have just incentivized worse and worse things to happen. We've made the problem much harder, caused far, far more harm than we ever would have done before. And I just think it's utterly ludicrous, utterly counterproductive. And you summarize quite, quite well how it works. We've created a market that we never needed to create in the first place. It would never have happened. I think the other thing, just to touch briefly on prisons, is you've touched on one of the ludic- whole, you know, most ludicrous aspects of the whole thing. If we cannot control what people are having in a prison, how do we think it would be remotely possible to control what people have in the rest of the world? You know, prisons are you know, more controlled than everyday society. So we cannot control it. We certainly can't control it in the outside world. And we do just make things worse. You're beginning to hear people admit this. When I was on the Home Affairs Select Committee, we went to Florida and then down to Colombia and some fascinating experiences there. Being with Keith Vaz in a uh, coca field is an interesting experience in and of itself. But I, I won't say anything more about that. I hope nobody's recording this. Um, but um, one of the most interesting things was in Florida. We went to the US Southcom, which is the Southern Command for the US uh, military for the entirety of South and Central America. And I remember... a. Uh, decorated general of some kind saying we have the might of the u.s navy and we can absolutely prevent any shipments of drugs to the west of the isthmus across the isthmus or the east we can do any one of those three and it just moves to the other two you know it was really quite a powerful moment with the u.s navy we can make them take a different route and that's it this is the most incredible sort of thing that we always see. And the prison example, I think, just is this perfect microcosm of everything. As soon as we introduce... The, the truth was, most governors were kind of happy with, with prisoners doing cannabis because it made them much easier to control, much more docile, and, everyone, you know, and the prisoners themselves were simply less bored as they did their time than they would otherwise have been. And then once you see drug testing come in, the first incentive is move on to heroin because it stays in the system for less time. And then eventually it's, well, let's start doing you know, the legal highs like Spice and Black Mambo, which is infinitely more dangerous. So you just get these perfect examples of just counterproductive incentivization by trying to control something which cannot be controlled because you cannot get rid of demand. It's just as simple as that. And just to add another statistic, the entire cannabis use, uh, the entire cocaine use in Britain would fit in one shipping container and Britain has 12,000 miles of coastline. It's just, that's it. But I have to say, sir, I think you've just demolished the war on drugs far more eloquently than I ever have done. So you should really be sitting here and, you know, I should be standing at the bar. So three last questions quickly if we can. So thank you very much for giving me this chance because I have really great experience with this because I was going through so many rehabs and it was very painful. (laughs) And I just need to tell you guys that drugs is not a problem. The problem is we don't have connection with ourselves. We don't care about our families and our age anymore. Just care about bullshit, you know. And we don't accept who we are. This is the problem. Like we blame all the drugs, but when you become connected with yourself, like physically and mentally, and when you accept who you are, when you express yourself, your problems will be gone. Because I have done it on myself. You know, I lost my parents, age seventeen. They just know drugs is not a problem. It's like how we create our life, you know, because I have half a million followers. I'm a writer, and 
I consider myself as a successful person, you know, I, I'm successful, like, I have money, you know, I travel the world, and I was able to overcome everything by accepting who, who I am, you know, and it's very hard, but it can be done, and we need to stop blame all these external issues and find the purpose why we live, you know, because this is the most important, like, if we don't know why we live, we are just surviving, we are not creative, you know, and we are just suffering, and it's so painful. So if we fix the internal issues, like connecting back to what is really important, the family, you know, that's love and family and peace and the truth, you know, and this is. This is the, this is what have helped me, you know. Like I overcame losing like maybe altogether 100 pounds, you know, and I went through anorexia, bulimia, cocaine addiction, all this bullshit, and I had to spend millions of dollars to discover who I am, and... So, you know, and I found my purpose in inspiring other people with that because it helps so many people and we don't know why we live. We are just in survival mode, so we need to take drugs to create the reality. And this is the real problem. I don't have any more questions. I think a round of applause for that because... <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, what's your name? I didn't catch your name. Clara Lima. What you say, it fits perfectly with what Johan Hari's narrative is in Chasing the Scream. Again, thank you for being so honest and candid with that. I, I think it absolutely sums it up. And Henry, what was it? What was the quote from Johan Hari? Uh, is it connection is the opposite of addiction? Yeah, something like that, isn't it? But you had a question as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, so this is kind of touching on two things. So one is the kind of, do we go from a bottom-up approach or do we go from a top-down approach and also kind of just the fact that at the moment it's just not an issue of political saliency at the moment no no politicians want to act on this and so at the moment the best thing to do at least seemingly in terms of reform is to, is to go for a bottom-up approach kind of work on kind of local reforms uh whatever it whatever happens to be whether it's kind of uh a, you know uh, police forces um uh, moving towards decriminalization whatever it happens to be does that um does does that then kind of take the teeth out of uh, out of our arguments when we're trying to actually move for more substantial uh, top down reform? Uh, ultimately, if 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 essentially communities look around and say, well, actually, there's not there's not that much of a problem with drugs because not that many people are getting arrested. There doesn't seem to be this huge huge problem. What then can we argue when we're actually trying to push for push for an actual move towards regulation? Depends who you're talking to. If it's someone who doesn't really care about it but cares about money, you can say, wouldn't it be great if we could raise another couple of billion in taxes? Uh, if it's someone who cares about communities, you can talk about the wrecking of that. You can talk about crime. There's lots of different arguments you can use. I think it is about tailoring the argument to the audience. Um, you can talk about families. You can talk about safety. You can talk about developing world. I think it depends on the audience. I think we've just got to try everything. You know, It's like a blunderbuss just firing out arguments and hoping some of them land home. That's a very mixed metaphor. But anyway... There's, there's a series of theories of how you get political change, and one of them is called kingdom theory, which basically says that there are crises when things can happen and change. Um, and so one approach is to say, how can we create a crisis where the answer is to move things along? It's quite hard to work out how you do that on something like this, uh, you know, at least in a you know, safe and manageable way. Um, so in the absence of that, we have to just keep pushing as much as you can. And there is the risk that people don't see the problems. You know, if we were like the Philippines, where people were executed for possession, then it would be easier to make the case for change. But I don't want us to get there first. 
So I think you do that bottom-up stuff, but you have to be prepared for when something does happen, which kicks things over the edge. Currently, all the crises are used against us. It'd be much better to be able to use those moments when change is possible to get the sort of things that we actually want to see that would make things better for everybody. Should we go to another question, or does someone want to... Because we've got quickly wrap this up because um, people got homes to go to, believe it or not. So <laughs> Very quickly. Thank you. Um, I was just going to say a lot of this argument's obviously revolved around the harms of prohibition and their ineffectiveness. Um, if hypothetically we could make a, a, a society where there was no drug access and no drug harms, do you think that would be the ultimate end goal of our argument? Or that a society where there was access to drugs, there's an inherent benefit in the drug-taking experience that would make that the better society? The latter. There is, and so I want to go further, Further than saying that uh, you know this is a good way of stopping people from doing drugs. Actually, intoxication, in whatever form you wish to do it, is a perfectly valuable and useful part of the human experience. It can help you understand problems in a different way. It can help you feel emotions in a different way. It can bring you closer to people that you didn't have before. It can just have good old-fashioned, visceral experience to add to your life. And look, this is impossible for us to get out there. I'm not going to pretend that I've ever in my life been written, writing pieces like this, or when you get invited on telly, you'd be mad to start saying, look, isn't it great, we should all start doing acid and cocaine. But nevertheless, yeah, my view is that drug-taking is a beneficial part of the human experience, not just something that we would get rid of the harms by legislating away, but something that actually more people had it in their lives, in moderation, like everything else, they would live richer and more beneficial lives than they would otherwise. You mentioned you didn't take any drugs. As I said, I was that boring. Um, but when we had the first proposed legislation on new psychoactive substances, the first thing I remember was an amendment, as it happens from, the, from Labour Shadow uh, Home Secretary, which was a ban on all psychoactive substances. And I remember we had a big argument about that because that would make the sale of caffeine illegal. And we had a big argument about, was coffee psychoactive? I was like, well, yes, of course it is. That is the point. People have coffee to wake up. That's why decaf doesn't sell so well, and I don't understand the point. Um, so the question is, which drugs are we talking about? We have a very arbitrary definition which says that this set are bad, illegal things which are not good for you, and this set, oh, yeah, they're fine. You know, we've sat here quite comfortably drinking. You know, it's hard to imagine, you know, this sort of perfect society where we don't have any drugs other than alcohol, because actually that's quite nice and it's a nice social thing. And, you know, it makes... Um, it's, it's, it was certainly the most dangerous I've taken all evening. Um, and, and, you know, but it, and, 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 it, and, it, and it is, on most ways of calibrating it, the second most dangerous. I mean, actually, heroin and some of the other things we talked about earlier are worse. But alcohol causes huge, huge harms. You count the domestic violence, the whole street violence, and so on and so on. Alcohol is incredibly dangerous. But I don't think we're you know, getting to a position where it be, wouldn't it be a much better world if nobody wanted to have alcohol? I just don't think that's where we're headed. And very, very quickly, last one. Um, the panel has alluded to the fact that politicians seem to have a disconnect between their public perception of drugs and their private perception of drugs. Do you think a responsible press mechanism has the role of outing them, as it were, in order to reduce the factor of hypocrisy? Or do you think this would be a net damaging act in terms of the perception of drug users? That's a very good question. I think there is an issue if someone is a very hardline campaigner against drugs and you're aware that they may not have always followed what they've um, preached, what they practiced, practiced what they preached. Uh, there are issues then. Generally, I'm not in favor of um, uh, outing people. 
full stop. I don't think that's a healthy thing in society. I'm not sure what gives me the right to do that over other people. Uh, but there are public interest arguments that can be made. And certainly in more extreme cases, I think they might be valid arguments. You always, I've got to tell you, I mean, just, just professionally and personally, you, if, if you sit there and you're having a chat with an MP and there's a point where you, you know, you're clearly off the record and you're having a chat and they tell you a view and then you just go publish it, then that's fine. I mean, you get that story, which isn't even a very good story in this case, but also that's just game over. I mean, they'll never speak to you again and then probably no other MPs. I mean, it, it, it won't get you very far personally and you, you'll be able to project less of a message in the long term than you would be if, if you sort of abided by the, the informal rules of how those conversations are conducted. I mean, I just think even politicians are allowed to do a bit of a private life, and it's already pretty shit. You know, I, 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 I went camping in Wales, and somebody took a photo of me and my girlfriend doing the washing up by our tent, and then broadcast it all over social media. You know, surely we're allowed occasionally some time off. So just to quickly wrap up, then one line from each of us: Where do we go from here? Is there likely to be change? Just whatever you'd like to say. I think, yes, there will be change and keep on fighting the fight because change only happens if people are prepared to fight for their beliefs and if you believe in it, fight for it. We've, we've won the argument. We now just actually have to get the change to happen. So we have to keep that pressure up. It will happen far, far too slowly, but I think it's about getting that kick that will get us over the line because all the arguments go our way already. I'm really sorry that I'm the last person in this line because I have to end it on a real downer and think, <laughs> no, I think we're in real trouble here and there's no sign of movement whatsoever and I can't see any possibility of change in the next 10 to 15 years, which is a lot of wasted lives through death and through prison and through lost job opportunities. That seems dreadful. If there is hope, because as you alluded to it earlier, it's just that the rest of the world moves on fast enough that Britain eventually looks at itself and just goes like, what am I doing? And actually starts to make progress. But I've got to tell you, I have very little optimism about the domestic state of this debate. So would you like a little bet that Britain will have legalised cannabis by 2030? I bet you an ounce. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening again. I think and I hope that that was an enjoyable one. And it was for me because they, they all lifted the veil. That's what I like about it is that we are getting that off the record, on the record conversation that I was hoping for. People are being honest and that's the best thing about it. So in 2017, we're going to carry on. We're going to hopefully do more content as well. So we're going to come out and ideally give you more than one a month, but it's... We'll see how it goes. Quite a lot of work goes into this. And speaking of which, I once more have to thank my producer, Nicky, who you wouldn't be listening to this without him. And I'm still having to record these little bits on the phone. That should change fairly soon because we just invested in some gear. Nicky's got to teach me how to use it. Yeah, I don't envy him on that. Um, I tried to look at Scroobius Pip's setup as we were recording the last episode of the Distraction Pieces Network special that we did. I didn't really learn that much because I uh, I get a little bit overwhelmed with button pressing. So once we do that, we should have a bit more content on the way because I'll be able to be a bit more portable and go and interview a few more people. So that's the idea for 2017. We're going to carry on with the live shows as well and, and do some good frames, see what we can do with some good panel discussions again. There's a lot of agreed in principle people that are coming on and if they all come off, it should be good. It should be interesting. I also want to thank My Name Is Ad as well for making us look so shiny uh, for the podcast artwork and everything he does for us. Please go check him out, My Name Is Ad, amazing graphic artist. Uh, and also Drew from Let Me Look TV that's been doing our multimedia side of things because 
These podcasts will be released in full, unedited. But mostly a massive thank you for you for listening and passing these on to people and subscribing and liking and giving us reviews on iTunes, all that kind of thing. It honestly does help pretty massively as well. It gives us some good clout when we're trying to book some guests. So if you can carry on doing that, and I'm saying that in a cheeky, wincy way, please do, because it, it just really does help. So in 2017, we'll be back and we'll see you again soon. And I thank you once more. Stay safe out there. Be good. And this is Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST. Thank you to Scroobius Pit for having us. Bye. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricade. Where true love seldom stray. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.